in the book of Nehemiah. We'll be finishing out chapter 1. Last week we talked about um, how it all starts. Of course, the big theme is that Nehemiah is building a physical wall. He's going back to uh, his homeland, Jerusalem, with his people. Many of them have already been uh, there in Jerusalem, and it's not going well. They went to rebuild the temple, um, but the land itself still has a lot of work to be done. Uh, the walls are torn down. Of course, um, it's a big city, and he's going back to restore it. But um, God teaches us through this that there is something bigger than just physical walls being built. There's a spiritual kingdom being built. And of course, we know that we have a spiritual kingdom in Christ, that he ushered this in uh, 2,000 years ago when he uh, died on the cross and was raised again, and that spiritually we walk in this kingdom, a kingdom where we are the servants, and Jesus is the king, and he guides us with his Holy Spirit. And one day, there will be a physical kingdom uh, when he comes back, and he will reign physically as our king. And so, um, tonight what we're going to see is um, in verses... 4 through 11, that this kingdom is built on prayer. So we're going to be talking about prayer. How is your prayer life? We talk about that, ask that question on a regular basis in Christian circles. People say, how's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? It's almost cliche, but to ask that is to ultimately ask, how's your life? Because that's the lifeblood. There's going to be days where you don't feel like you've got much going, where everything seems to be going wrong, where um, you get bad news, you get horrible news, you get worse news, and you think, gosh, everything is crumbling. But if you've got the Word of God and you've got prayer, and you've got everything you need. You've got the gospel. And as you get older and mature in the faith, regardless of age, uh, you'll find that everything comes down to prayer. Everything. What once seemed like something we would do when it was convenient or something that um, we had the privilege of doing but often weren't disciplined to do is the very thing that keeps us going. And my prayer for us as a church is that we would have a revival in prayer. I had an old professor who used to tell me all the time, if you want to see a church planning movement, you've got to see a disciple-making movement. If you want a disciple-making movement, you've got to have a prayer movement. And prayer shows your dependence, your utter submission and utter dependence on the God of the universe. It's, it is, you can't say, you can't say I depend on God without prayer. You can't say I submit to God without prayer. You can't say I trust God without prayer. It's everything. He says, abide in me. How do we abide? We abide by his word. We abide by obedience. We abide by prayer. And when people ask about your prayer life, we usually think of it from a personal standpoint. And remember, your faith is personal, but it's not private. Your prayer life isn't just about you. Your prayer life is about others because you are a kingdom builder. You are building the spiritual kingdom that Jesus is in charge of. And many of us have heard the phrase, words either build us up or they tear us down. And when it comes to prayer and building this kingdom, we see the foundation of it, the very foundation is prayer. Now, Nehemiah, he is a man of prayer, and that's what he's, um, one of the things he's known for. And in the book of Nehemiah, you're going to see nine different prayers, and this is probably the most significant, at least in length, of any of the prayers, and it's one that um, isn't just a random prayer. It's a, um, it's a way of praying that was prayed by Daniel, and Ezra, and Esther, and if you go back to even 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah, you'll see some of the same characteristics in the way that he prays. And so it's something for us to take note of, because Jesus ultimately builds his kingdom on the backs of people of prayer. And 
Nehemiah is going to teach us uh, what a kingdom prayer looks like. And as our high priest, Jesus being our high priest, um, we have every opportunity every day to go to him in prayer. And there's nothing that should be stopping us. And so I hope uh, that we get fired up about prayer. If I could do anything, if I could, if, if we could as a church do anything tonight, if God said, here, you got five people, you got 10 people, you got 15 people, what should you do? To be a people of prayer. Man, I'll tell you what, I, <clears throat> I think about this building campaign and I think about all of the conversation about facilities and my heart constantly is just churning and thinking in my mind about what are we actually reproducing? Like, what are we trying to expand? Because if we're not a people just on fire for the Lord, a people of prayer, then you can get a facility to hold zillions of people. What does it matter? What does it matter? My son is about to become a person of prayer <laughs> in about two seconds. It's good to be some, we're going to have some prayer time back there. And so, um, this is going to be a sermon on prayer. And you've heard a thousand sermons on prayer. But there's nothing better that we can be doing than to be praying as a people, to have a focus on prayer, because this thing, this is all about God. So let's just jump in, let's walk through this, and I'm going to pray as I'm talking that we have a fire, a desire that comes from God to be dependent on Him in prayer. This is how the kingdom gets built, in here and out there. So let's jump in, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4 through 11. As soon as I heard these words, remember you heard the bad news about Jerusalem falling apart and the people in trouble, verses 1 through 3. I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you night and day for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. And we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, these are, he's talking about exiles, being cast all over the earth. From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. And they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Hopefully you're seeing some patterns here. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. So he's praying to the king about an encounter he's about to have with his own king, the king of Persia. Let's jump in. Let's walk through this. I'm going to show you six things as we walk verse by verse uh, that Nehemiah teaches us about prayer. It's not the only six things, but it's six things that are worth stopping and parking and talking about for a little bit. First one we see, verse 4. You've got to check your posture. 
There's a spiritual posture. There's a prayer posture. He says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. It says he wept. He mourned. When was the last time you wept for somebody? Or mourned for days? Even people that we love that pass away. Sometimes we'll cry for a little bit. We don't mourn for days. You see some of these Old Testament men of God, women of God, they'll fall down and they'll pray and they'll mourn for days and days and days. He said, I continued to fast. So he went without food. And he prayed before the God of heaven. Isn't it interesting? How many times in the evangelical church, when we talk about prayer, it always goes back to the foundation of discipline. Are you disciplined? Are you disciplined? Are you disciplined? Are you disciplined? Nobody's talking to Nehemiah about discipline because he's got determination. He's got a heart that's broken for people, a soft heart, not a hard heart, not one that sat in evangelical circles sermon after sermon after sermon and heard about people in Africa and third world countries and we've become so hardened to the bad news that we don't ever share the good news. We got to almost convince people nowadays that they should pray. Do you need to be convinced? Do you want to pray? Do you desire to pray? Sometimes we don't. But if you were um, maybe growing up, you probably heard <laughs> you probably heard your mom or your dad say from time to time, "Sit up, stand up straight." Sometimes the older you get, the more physical ailments you get. Sometimes you can go to a doctor and say, man, my back hurt, my joints hurt, my hip hurts. And, and, and it'll come down to, How, how's your posture? You go to the chiropractor. You think, ah, oh, I just got a little, little kink in my back, nothing big. Before you know it, you're counting the dozens of times he cracks your back with that little back cracker. We used to have a competition when we were kids. My dad would take us all to the chiropractor. That was our fun thing to do. And we would, we would count who gets the most cracks on their back. And sometimes it gets knocked out of alignment quickly. Your physical posture has issues. Other times you find that it's slow. That you <clears throat> stood up straight. Your core was good, but then you started to slouch a little bit over time, a little bit over time, a little bit over time, until you got to a point where your posture was impacting the rest of your body in a way that was painful. You see, God doesn't just care about your prayers. He cares about your posture. He doesn't just care about your words. He cares about your heart. When you come to God, before you ever say a word, what is the condition of your heart? It's always good to pray, but if you find yourself consistently praying just because you feel like uh, I'm guilted into it because they asked me to pray for them, I should pray for them at least once. I wonder if I just pray for them once if I can say I've been praying for them. Because when I see them next, I know they'll, they'll talk about it again and I'll say, well, I was praying for you, but I don't want to lie to them. I wonder if just one time will be enough. Like, do we want to pray? What does this tell us about our view of God? I mean, the God of the universe... God of heaven and earth, he's right before us. We can access him anytime we want because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And yet so many times it just feels like a burden. How's the condition of your heart? You see, verses 1 through 3 showed us last week when his brother Hanani came to him and he said, when he didn't have to say, but Nehemiah said, 
tell me what's going on back in Jerusalem. And he said, it's bad. It's real bad. And Nehemiah's heart broke. You see, if you want to position your heart, you have to incline your ear. You got to not only listen to God, first and foremost, but you gotta, you've got to listen to the, the human condition, the brokenness all around you, and you've got to make sure that you don't get a hard heart, the kind of heart that is not just hardened towards people and their problems and their drama, but even towards God and prayer. Some of us have a hard heart towards prayer. Ezekiel 36 says, this is one of the promises of the new covenant that he's going to take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Do you have a soft heart? God wants someone who's broken hearted for the things that break God's heart. That you would love what he loves and hate what he hates. Your posture, your spiritual posture in coming to God needs to be one that aligns with his heart. It's not just about your words, it's about your posture. Verse 5. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. In Hebrew, that's a word, hesed. You'll see it over and over and over and over, hundreds of times in the Old Testament. refers to the strong love of God, his mercy, his kindness. There's several words wrapped up into that one Hebrew word. With those who love him and keep his commandments. Second thing we see is you've got to start with praise. You've got to start with praise. All throughout the Bible, people praise God. The Psalms, praise God, praise God, praise God. Prayer is about God. Prayer involves you, but it's primarily about God. You think about all the relationships you have in your life. What relationships are healthy that you have that revolve around you? I mean, forget about a two-way street. Like, some of us, we wouldn't have... We wouldn't have a healthy relationship with anyone if we only talked about ourselves. And so it's easy for us to come to God and to view him as a slot machine, to view him as as someone who can be like a genie and give us what we want. But if you want to desire God, if you want your posture, your spiritual posture to align with God's, you've got to see God in his proper perspective. I could tell you all day long about all the brokenness out there and say, doesn't that break your heart so that your, your spiritual posture, the core of your being and how you stand or kneel before the God of the universe, don't you want that to be? But even then you would get hard hearted. You want your posture to be one that aligns with God. You got to know who God is. And you got to come and you got to praise God at the start. You'll be disheartened very quickly if you want a life of prayer that revolves around you and your issues. The order is important. It's praise before petition. Now, keep in mind, I'm just walking through this teaching. If you go to God and you don't praise him, but you petition him, it's not the end of the world. If you find yourself, though, every time you're praying to God, you don't praise him. And when I say praise, I mean that you recognize who God is, the attributes of God. Sometimes, um, you know, sometimes, just the other night, Tara and I were praying with Silas. We said, all we're going to do is praise God. We're going to go in a circle, and we're each going to say something about God. Sovereignty of God. God is awesome. God is great. Tara and I, we can use some churchy words. Silas, he's got huge and big and awesome. Like, he's, he doesn't have tons of them. That's okay. And we just went around, and that was the prayer. That was just the prayer. 
If you just spent time with your friends by yourself saying, you know what, I'm just going to pray a prayer that I'm not going to ask for anything. I'm just going to praise God. I'm just going to declare who God is. God doesn't need to know who he is. He knows who he is. He needs to know you know who he is. I'm the one. You're the one who needs to remember who God is. The great and awesome God. Who? This is who God is. He keeps his covenant. He's got steadfast love. He's got that hesed, that steadfast mercy, that compassion, that kindness with those who love him and keep his commandments. Keep in mind, we're talking about the, the, the covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, which we'll talk about here in a bit. That's why you say he loves just those who love him and keep his commandments. What about those who don't? Well, we'll get into that. But you've got to start with praise. Why do you start with praise? A couple reasons. Number one, because God's worthy. <laughs> you've got to remember God is God and we are not. Number two, praise changes perspective. You see, what you say is what you exalt. Some of us, we found we got coworkers who talk about their problems. And their problems aren't that big, but they just talk and talk and talk and talk about their problems. And you can work yourself into a frenzy real quick. Because what you talk about, you exalt, and what you exalt, you focus on. And so you're ultimately putting something on the proverbial throne of your life. And if you're not praising God, and all you hear about in your own prayers is the drama of your own life, you're probably going to leave your prayers more depressed than when you came. Because you've got to remember who's God. If you spend more talk, time talking about how bad your sin is than how great your God is, Um, there might be something in your prayer life that needs tweaked. I am. This is just kind of a depressing little story here for you. Even last night, I, you know, I, I came home and even in our house, we find ourselves sometimes struggling with this. Tara asked how my day was and I told her how my day was and it was just depressing. Like there was, I didn't tell her anything good. I was just like, well, this happened and that happened. She said, great. Um, and then uh, Silas started talking a little bit about his life and he didn't have anything good to say. Uh, it was just kind of depressing. And then I asked Tara about her life and she was like, well, here's the update on this and here's where we are on this. And it wasn't good at all. And we just over like a 20 minute period, only thing we talked about was just how things were going and like, it just wasn't good. And Tara, I could tell she was depressed. She gets depressed a little quicker than I do. Um, and she said, we, can someone just say something good about something? Like, I need some good news in this house. And it was just depressing. Like, our house is just like, yeah, just depressing. And yet, was God not still God in that moment? Before I came home and before we all laid out our drama for 20 minutes in the Booth household, God was still God. God didn't change at all. What changed is that we chose to focus on our drama without praising God. But God is still God. And some of us, that's what our lives have become. We've become so accustomed to talking about our junk. And it's good to petition God. It's good to come to God with our junk. But he's not, he's not just a landfill God. You don't just take your junk there and then turn around and drive off. But if that's how you are approaching him, you're forgetting. No wonder everything stinks. Like our God is still God and he deserves to be praised. And if we lose that perspective, 
Not only is that going to not make us want to pray, that's going to make us depressed. Last thing you want to do is go to the God of the universe who can actually change everything that you have issues with, including your own heart, and fail to acknowledge who he is. You've got to start with praise. Verse 6, and let your ear be attentive. So this is interesting because he's saying this about God. And your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Third thing we see is you got to continue with confession. So you got to check your posture, your prayer posture. You got to start with praise, but you got to continue in confession. You see, we just talked about how you got to have the proper perspective of God, but you got to have the proper perspective of yourself. This is kingdom-building prayers, and we're not just talking about the kingdom out there. We're talking about the one in here. So, what does Nehemiah say here? Well, this little bit right here, the first part of verse 6, will actually hit in verse 11, because he ends up saying essentially the same thing. But he says, I I pray before you day and night. Day and night. So this isn't just like once in a while. This is all the time. I'm praying for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people. And then he says down below, even I and my father's house have sinned. You'll see over and over in this passage, he says, we, 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 we. He's talking about, Him and Israel being one. This isn't your pastor. Nehemiah wasn't a priest. We're not talking about Ezra here. He was just a head of the household of of a group of people in Israel. He was a leader, but this is like a church member. And he's taking responsibility for the sins of the people. So, let's talk real quick about the two different types of confession he has. Number one, individual confession. Confession, and then number two, communal. Individual, it's like, it's like Andy just talked about a couple weeks ago. It's that emotional decongestion. decongestion. It is you being able to, to clear and, and not just generally confess to God, but specifically. I think it's good to say in general, God, I'm, I'm a sinner. But to specifically, to, to sit for a second in your sin when you come before God so that you recognize who you are. Because we could say all day long, well, I, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. Well, do you really think about it though? Do you think about how it breaks the heart of God? And there's a precious moment, even in our prayers, where we can stop and think about, gosh, God, I've sinned in this way. I've sinned in this way. I've sinned in all these ways, even in the last 24 hours. And I don't even, I'm not even, there's so many things I don't even know about. You think about Job and how he prayed and he was offering sacrifices for the sins of his family. They didn't even know about things they might have done in ignorance. You think about the Old Testament law and the sacrificial system and the sin offerings. The sin offerings were just those done essentially in ignorance. But there's a whole other process for the sins that were done intentionally. Be specific in your sins. The gospel will be much more powerful when you recognize the weight of your sin. But the community aspect is important too. This is, this is a little different. You see, he confesses for the people of Israel. This shows that he's taken ownership. You've got to take ownership of the people around you. If you look at a prayer in, in uh, Ezra chapter 9, 
Daniel chapter 9, I told you that they prayed prayers very similar to this. You'll see them saying, we, the people, we, us together, we have sinned. Do you pray for the sins of your family? Do you pray for the sins of your church, of your city? Or do you separate yourself? Sometimes this is what we like to do. We like to come to God and we'll admit that we're sinners, but we're just glad we're not sinners like the person next to us. So we not only don't take responsibility for their sin, we just say, hey, here's my sin. I'm glad it's not their sin. But Jesus says, don't come. Like the guys before the temple. And one says, God, I'm glad I'm not like him. And the other one says, have mercy on me. I can't even come close to you. Why would I in the, why in the world would I take responsibility for the sins of others? Well, technically, you can't go to hell for someone else, right? But you can still bear the burden of one another. We're called to do that in the New Testament. You bear the burden of each other's sin. You see, disciple makers do that because they love the church. They take ownership of the church. Ownership of the church isn't saying, you know, well, I'll, I'll financially help on this building campaign. Man, I hope you do. Kudos to you. We need it. But financial or ownership of this congregation is saying, I'm going to pray for, I'm going to pray for the people here. I'm going to take responsibility for everybody's junk. We're in this thing together. And when God looked down on Israel, he wasn't just looking at Nehemiah. He was looking at his people because the covenant was with all of them. And so he put himself as responsible. You look at something like, even look at the baptism of Jesus. Why in the world did Jesus get baptized? Well, of course he says, because this had to be, right? He's fulfilling prophecy all the days of his life there. But if you think about it, he came to the baptism waters. John the Baptist was baptizing a baptism of repentance for the people. They were coming from everywhere, and he was baptizing them with water, a baptism of repentance, telling them about the Messiah that would come. And so Jesus comes up, and what does John say? He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And yet Jesus comes up to him and says, baptize me. Think about how crazy that was for John. On one hand, Jesus is the one that should be baptizing him, but he's saying, um, you know that the baptism we're doing is a baptism of repentance of sins, and you're the one who's going to take the sins of the world away. So why in the world? Think about the theological confusion in John's mind. Why in the world would Jesus, could Jesus, even be baptized? Well, Jesus is the one who took the sins of the world away. But Jesus came and he became like us. This is part of the incarnation. So he doesn't have sins to repent of, but he gets in the baptism water and does what everyone else was doing. You say, why did he take take that on? He didn't need to take that on. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of Jesus leaving his throne in heaven to come down and be one of us. He could have done it a million different ways, but he did it that way because God says, I want, I want to feel what you feel. There's just something that takes place when you take the burden of other people that you are united. This is what God shows us in the gospel. I um, I had seminaries weird. Um, because often, if you go to a large one, people travel from all over the country, all over the world, 
and you know you're only going to be there for a couple of years. But usually, like, for example, I was in Lynchburg, Virginia, where I did mine. And there's tons of little churches all around that are looking for pastors. And so there's this kind of like, eh, well, you're going to be here for a couple of years. And you got all these young pastors being trained up. Um, they could go serve in these local churches. And so there's this kind of tension between the people who have been in that area forever, wondering, do we take one of these seminary kids knowing they're going to be gone probably in a couple of years? And then the seminary students saying, we don't want to, you know, be here if we're going to leave quick. Like, should we get involved? And sometimes there's these awkward, weird, prearranged marriages that end up happening that you're like, okay, my buddy's going to be the pastor over here. And that's a little bit what happened when we were there. One of my friends, um, he he decided to go lead this church of like 50. And so we he asked me to come along and he said, hey, will you be the um, small groups pastor? I said, sure. Do they have small groups? No. Um <laughs> Do they, um, have they done anything else? Well, they've done Sunday school for how long? Since 1776. Sure. This is going to be an easy transition. Just 230 some years of them doing Sunday school. And you want them to be small groups. I can't wait. Let's do this. And so I jumped on board and I remember at first it was pretty good. Um, the people showed support and loved him and he loved them and everything was great. And it's like, okay, this is maybe going to work. This is going to be okay. But then before you know it, it's he said, she said, and drama starts happening and you start hearing both sides of the story. I would be talking to him and I would hear, you know, what his family was going through. And I felt for him because we were really good friends. But then I was part of the congregation, obviously, and I would hear what they were thinking. And I was like, eh, you kind of got a point here. And I, we just saw, Tara and I saw this train wreck that was about to happen. And one day, um, I remember um, the he said, she said just went too far. And instead of getting in the same room and saying, let's just repent together. Let's take responsibility for our actions. It was right before a worship service and he was crying. And he, you know, I was like, oh, this this ain't good. (laughs) This ain't ain't good. And um, he got up there and he basically rebuked him and then walked out of the pulpit in like the middle of the sermon and just walked away and said, we're done. It was really awkward. If you guys do that right now, I'll be ticked. Um, and the church struggled, and they came together and tried to figure out what to do. And he moved. He left. And, um, and that was it. I wish I could say there was, like, some great – these are all pretty depressing stories I got tonight. But um, but but I remember in in that time – I remember seeing how all that went down and how no one took responsibility for their own sin. And, and, and I remember thinking to myself, oh, this has got to be different. I've got to do something different than this. And so as Tara and I went and planted a church in Utah, and sure enough, things start growing and people start having complaints. And Ryan, we don't like how you're doing this. And Ryan, can you change this? And Ryan, don't do that. And, and I remember start thinking, like getting defensive like my buddy, and start thinking, oh, I got to fight for myself. I got to fight for myself. Don't do that. And I thought, man, the enemy loves this. The devil loves when the church is divided, when nobody takes responsibility for sins, and they definitely don't take responsibility for other people's sins. And I remember the Spirit of God telling me very clearly, Ryan, you need to, you need, you need to humble yourself, and you need to take responsibility for all of the sin. And I stopped fighting. And I started apologizing. And I started saying, okay, even whether I thought I was wrong on stuff or not, I just started saying, you know what? We're all sinners. We're going to work things out. But unity is more important than this. Like the devil loves this. And I'm like, I'm not giving into this. And so I found myself early in ministry seeing, okay, I'm going to change. I'm going to change. And I'm going to, I'm just going to 
I'm going to bear their sin. What God did through that and has done over the years has been a beautiful thing because I've seen people repent. When you don't say, you need to repent. But when you say, you know what, I am in the wrong. Let me, let me confess my sin. And before God, bear even their sin. There's a unity that takes place. There's an understanding of the gospel that will change your heart and your mind that comes with that. Because you see what Jesus did. He, he had no sin and yet he bore our sin. Israel had a day of atonement and they had a scapegoat. They would put the sins of the community on and that scapegoat would be pushed out into the forest and would leave. And they had this one day out of the year. And Jesus, of course, as I said, is the lamb that takes away the sin. Jesus takes away the sin of the community, but we carry it to him. And when you're in a grow group, when you've sinned um, with other Christians, even in this city, You can point fingers and say, you've sinned this way, you've sinned this way, and fight for how much of a sinner you don't think you are. Or you can stop and say, you know what, we have all sinned before God. And I'm going to carry the sins of my city to the cross. Verses 7 through 9. This one we're going to dig into a little bit. There's a... There's kind of some hidden meaning that I I think is beautiful. It says, We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. And remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts or your exiles are in the uttermost parts of heaven, scattered throughout all the region, it's just a a way of saying that. Some of your translations might say it differently. From there, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen. So I'm going to probably bring them back to Jerusalem is what we're talking about here to make my name dwell there. Fourth thing we see when you're praying, pray the Bible. You want to pray kingdom prayers, pray the Bible. What does that mean? That sounds odd, doesn't it? You ever been on a blind date? Anybody? A couple of you? Hopefully you're not on one right now. That'd be awkward. (laughs) I've never been on one, but I imagine it'd be awkward if you were on a blind date. What would be so awkward about it? What do you think would be awkward about it? Outside of everything. Probably the fact that you don't know them. Like you're set up with someone you don't know. You're going to be talking to someone that you don't know. Unless you're like a salesman for a living, it's going to be really weird, at least for a while. Here's what I'm convinced. That's most of our prayer lives. We talk to a God that we barely know. Everything you know about God and how to pray and who the God is, that you're, it all comes from the word of God. I've heard people over the years say, well, I don't pray because I just read the Bible. Well, the Bible is going to make you want to pray. Well, I don't, I don't read the Bible because I just pray. I used to have, I used to have uh, youth when I would be like a small group leader for youth say, man, I'm just more of a prayer guy. I don't read the Bible. How do you know who you're praying to? How do you know the characteristics, the attributes of the God? How do you know how to pray? How do you know anything about the one you're talking to? Unless you're just literally talking to yourself. Nehemiah prays something special here. 
all of this just looks like a fairly normal prayer. What this is, is the word of God. He's praying, not verbatim, but in some places verbatim, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and Deuteronomy chapter 13. It's chapter 4, verses 25 through 30, which talk about how this Mosaic covenant, this covenant that, that God gave to Moses, to the people of Israel, that if they rebelled, they would be scattered throughout all the people. But then there's, there's a return that if they, if they repent, that in Deuteronomy chapter 30, it tells them that they can come back and that he'll restore them. And so he's actually praying two separate passages. One of, hey, we get it. We've wronged you and you sent us into exile just like you said would happen if we wronged you. But you also said, God, that you would restore us, that you'd bring us back. And he takes these two passages and he combines them into this beautiful new passage in Nehemiah chapter 1. There's a beauty in that because he's actually praying the word of God. He has an understanding of the word of God. There is power when our word and God's word overlap. There is a unifying, beautiful power. When you realize God's word is here and your word now is overlapping with it. And what I mean by that is early in my walk with Jesus, I, I, I didn't know how to pray. I was just a single dude. I, I was just learning about the Bible. But as I would pray, um, I started to realize the more I grew and mature, I started to pray the Bible back to God. I started to, like, my prayers were filled with the Bible. Things that I was reading in the Bible just started coming out in my prayer because I realized, you know, you get into James chapter 5, and you, you start realizing in James, um, really the whole book of James, uh, but you see, we're to pray God's will, to ask things in God's will. And as you dig in, you start realizing, well, I know his word. <laughs> um, I'm going I'm to pray his word because I know this is his will. And so you're, you're, you're finding yourself praying the Bible. Just like in conversation, you find yourself sometimes hopefully speaking the Bible. People don't know because you don't always give it a verse and a passage. But like you're speaking parts of scripture throughout your daily conversation. And when you start doing that with God, there's a beautiful power and you start to find yourself lining up. And then all of a sudden the Psalms make sense to you when they say, well, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart because you see the desires of your heart changing. How many times have we prayed and been insecure because we're like, I don't know if this is God's will. But you start praying scripture and you'll be like, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm right in the smack dab in the middle of God's will. I am, um, Tara and I, you know, we go, we go hiking and just have a good time with Silas. And when we go on these little adventures, we got um, a camera that we had like a, a lens. It was just the kit lens that came with it. It was one of those Canon Rebel T2 zillions. I don't know what it is. It's one, you know, camera people know about it. But it was one that was like, man, this is a nice camera. And I figured when I got the camera that like just using this camera would be way better than any other pictures that I'd ever taken. And in general, they were. But I realized like, man, this lens, it's just, it's like an 18 to 35 millimeter lens. It just kind of stinks. Like things are, nothing's super clear, like crazy, crazy clear. Um, but everything's just kind of in the same focus. And I would start to learn some things. And I was like, I don't know if I can make this better. But then for Christmas last year, we got a lens. Or we kind of got like a family gift from uh, my in-laws. And it was this this lens, this 50 millimeter lens. And um, my brother-in-law, I asked him, I was like, dude, we just need a better lens. Can you just like find one? And then 
<laughs> will tell us about it. And, and luckily they, they bought it for us. And we were like, oh, this is going to be awesome and great. We went out and started taking pictures. And I started noticing things were, were clear that needed to be clear. They were super in focus, but the things in the back were, were kind of blurry. And so I started asking him, like, why is this lens better than the other lens? And I said, why can't, can I get like a, um, like a 18 to, to 55 one that will zoom in and out? Why do I just have to get like a 50 millimeter lens? And he was explaining all this to me and I, I didn't understand all the jargon and whatnot. But he, he's saying, listen, the reason why that, that 50 is so good is because of the, the aperture. And I was like, what, what are you talking about the aperture? And he said, well, there's, 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 a, um, there's light that has to go into the, obviously, the, the lens. And the aperture controls how much light comes in. And so I started doing a little bit of research on aperture and started figuring things out. And you can adjust things. But this lens lets more light in. And, and I started kind of piecing it all together. And I was like, man, I don't want to get too cheesy. But it kind of makes sense because you see the word of God is a lamp unto our feet. And, and when you're praying the word of God, you're letting God's word even into your, you're letting it light up even your prayer life. And so your situations are going to become more clear. And the main thing is going to become more clear. And the focus on what is the main thing is going to become more clear. And you're going to see Jesus more clearly. You're going to see God more clearly. And you're going to have just a different experience than you would otherwise. You see everything in those, with that kit lens, everything was in general, a little bit blurry. Just like your situation, just like what you're going through. But you let more light in. You get a lens that lets more light in. Everything changes. Things in the background are blurry, but things that need to be in focus are in focus. It's more clear. That's what happens when you start praying the Word of God. Let me... Let's just for fun, let's just, let's just walk through this because I think some of you probably hear and you're like, pray the word of God. What are you talking about? Expound a little bit. We've got a minute, so let's just do this together. So if you are at home and you're reading this, um, this is what a lot of people might do. They might, they might pray, um, God help me to understand your word, and then they read the word, and maybe they pray again after that. But um, when you're reading the word, sometimes just even read it once or, or study it and then stop along the way and start praying it back to yourself. But this is the key. You're going to have to dig into the word to know the word um, because here. Here's what I'm saying. This is the Mosaic Covenant. We don't live under the law of Moses anymore, okay? Just so you know. So you're like, this is kind of a complicated passage. How would we even pray this? So, so you say, <clears throat> okay, we've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. And so you're praying and you say, Father God, I, I have sinned against you. I am corrupt. I know I'm corrupt. And, and you have commandments and I've fallen short of them. And you have statutes, you have principles, you have rules. You've, you, you've, you've given us commandments. God, help me to understand your commandments. If there's commandments I don't know, God, help me to know in Scripture where they're at. And Father, help me to, to not just disobey you all the time. I see that you've given us things in their life. God, thank you for those commandments to Moses. Thank you that we live under a new covenant now. And remember, your, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses and saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you to among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcast and are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. God, thank you. Thank you, Father, that you have given us a word that you even at this time, when this is written, you had a new covenant for us, one that, that is different, one that is dependent not on our behavior because this covenant was dependent on God coming to the table and, and Israel coming to the table and each keeping up their bargain. But we live under a new covenant that is just God and, and what he's done on the cross and we come in faith, but we can't screw this up. We can't lose our 
our salvation. Thank you, God, that when I was far from you, you brought me to yourself. That one day I will ultimately be in heaven, but right now you dwell in me. And God, thank you that your Holy Spirit empowers me to keep your commandments. And you just, you see how you just like pray through it and all of a sudden what you're reading now becomes part of you. And then all of a sudden, here's the principle at work. When the student becomes a teacher, the student really starts to understand things a lot better. And not every one of you is going to be a preacher. But when you start praying back the word of God, you're, you're having to interpret it. You're having to say it to God. And it's helping you to pick, put the whole big picture of scripture together, but it's helping you to understand it. When the words come out of your mouth, all of a sudden you're not just a student receiving, but you're teaching it. And you know teachers always learn best because they got to teach it. That's when students grow the most. I could go on and on and on about praying the Bible, but for some of you, maybe this is the most practical thing um, that you can do on a daily basis that will change the way you understand Scripture and God. Verse 10, They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by, the, by your great power and by your strong hand. The fifth thing we see is pray for the people. Pray the Bible, but pray for the people. Now, here's what you see. You say, they are your servants. So Nehemiah is saying, he's talking about Israel, right? They're your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. So he's praying for these people. From that verse alone, it just seems like you're praying for the, the saved ones, ones who are good with God. This is great, but here's what's going on. This is almost verbatim a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 29. And here's the context. Moses, right before he says this verse, is telling the people in Israel, he's saying, you guys have been wicked, horrible, rebellious, stubborn people. And and so, and he goes through all their history of how they denied God when they came out of slavery and, and they were um, just complaining and grumbling in the desert and how they had the golden calf and all the different things that happened. And he's saying, I, I, after all this, I got down for 40 days, 40 nights. I prayed on my face. I prayed for you guys that God wouldn't destroy you. God wanted to destroy you. And I stood in the gap, and this is what he says at the end. When he was talking to God, in that prayer that God wouldn't destroy the Israelites, he says, they're your servants and your people. You've redeemed them by your great power and your your strong hand. So it's not just the the saved people who everything's going well for. He's the stubborn, the rebellious people, the Israelites. So when you say pray for the people, what people are we talking about? All the people. (laughs) pray for the church. You pray for the lost. You pray for the people in the city. You pray for everybody, but you stand and intercede on their behalf. Peter tells us that we are a nation of priests. We all have access to Jesus. Of course, Jesus gives us access to the Father. And so you pray for people. You say, there's some people in my life, honestly, they ain't got no, they ain't got no hope at all. Like, I know I don't want to say that. It makes me feel horrible. But like, I've been praying for them for years and years and years, and they ain't getting saved. They're not changing their ways. Listen, what else you got? What else you got? God can change you in prayer. God can change them. At the very least, you're going to the source. You're going to the only one who can ever change anything. You just keep praying. You just keep praying. You persevere. And you need to know that some people... Probably in this room, some of our salvations came from the backs of righteous men and women who prayed. I'm not saying that any one of us can save one another, but I'm saying, man, you pray like you're praying them into the kingdom. 
There's probably a good shot. A lot of people did that for the people in this room. I've said it before. I'll say it again. In high school, when I had a high school sweetheart, and man, we thought we were going to get married. We thought everything was awesome. And for the first three, four, five months, it was. It was so good. Oh, she loved me. I loved her. Everything was going to be great. And then it started falling apart. And she had a solid Christian family, but she was rebellious. Of course, I was the most rebellious person there was. I was just a horrible kid. And so she knew in her rebellious stage, I'm going to find the worst rebel. And so she found me and she brought me home. And mom and dad knew that I was a wicked, wicked kid. But I remember they prayed for me. They told me they'd pray for me. And they invited me to the dinner table. And I got to know them. And it was it was the most beautiful family I'd ever been a part of. I love my family. I don't want to disrespect my family. But what I saw in that family was incredible. The way they loved each other, the way they lived out the commandments of Christ. I mean, their daughter was wicked, but the rest of them were awesome. (laughs) And so when things started going south between me and her, I mean, it was horrible. It was to the point where I remember one time they told me, you can't talk to her anymore. She's going to have a mental breakdown. I was like, yeah, that's probably right. Like, it was just horrible. I feel for them in a way now that I I couldn't have understood back then. And by the time Silas is a teenager, I'm going to feel even worse for him. I remember there was a time, there was a good chunk of time where she moved on. I think she even had other boyfriends. And yet I was starting to really get kind of infatuated with Jesus. And so I didn't know what to do. They invited me. They kept inviting me to church. And so I would be on one side of them. She would be on the other. She would be ticked, like just angry as all get out. And then they would just sit between us and make sure she didn't yell at me in the middle of a worship service. And I, w- I really, though, I wasn't there to tick her off, but I didn't know where else to go. I, was, I, I didn't know anything about Christianity. And I would hear the messages and I'd hear about Jesus. And it was great. After, man, even after I, I graduated high school, and I went on, they would send me Dylan's cards. They would bless me. They would get me groceries. They would take care of me long after I was far away from their daughter. When they lived in another state, they'd be sending me emails of encouragement. They prayed and prayed and prayed for me. And when I finally, years later, gave my life to the Lord, I let them know the role they played in my life. But here's the thing. They never got like really any of the earthly blessing of my life. They got the worst of me. They were with me when I went to jail. They were with the... I didn't have, I could only have six people come visit me in jail. And I usually only had one, and it was the mom. She didn't have to come to jail to see me. She was a middle-class white lady. Not the kind of gal you'd see just hanging out in a jail. And she'd come in there with all prim and proper, sit down on the other side and pick up the phone and talk to me. I mean, I felt embarrassed just having her come there. Like my salvation came from their prayers. Jesus saved me, but those people prayed like crazy for me. And you know what? If you ask them right now, it's been, it's been what? Close to 10 years. They, they would do it again because that's how they lived their lives. How many of us are praying people into the kingdom? How many of us are, are more known for who we've given up on than who we're still praying for? who we've walked away from than who we're sitting in the mess with. You keep praying. You keep fighting. Disciple makers are going to spend a lot of time praying for people who don't care to pray for themselves. Who are you praying into the kingdom? You've got to be intentional. 
The day you die, you better have a little notebook next to you, uh, in, in your pocket, uh, wherever. That's just people you're praying for. People you're praying for. People you pr- people come up to me all the time, ask for prayers. I could just tell them, yeah, I'm going to pray. I go, to, I write it down. I write it down so I can go back to it, so I can pray, pray, pray. Last but not least. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. Remember, he prayed this earlier. And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. How many of you delight to fear his name? Talk about a beautiful tension. Delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This man is the king. He's about to go. He says, now I was the cupbearer to the king. Last thing we see is you can come boldly to the throne. You can come boldly to the throne. Remember, he's not only a cupbearer, but just like Daniel, who had to go before a king, Ezra, who went before a king, Esther, who went before a king, they all had to come boldly before an earthly king, but they always went to a heavenly king first. Because they know, whatever the heavenly king says, the earthly king will do. Because he bows down to them too. Whether, whether that earthly king knows it or not, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 say that Jesus is our high priest who can sympathize with our every temptation and that we should come, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. I am... Um, I got a couple minutes here. Tara and I, we didn't start off too well when, when we first um, got married. Many of you guys know the story, but I always had this incredible insecurity. I wanted to be married. I was 22, 23, and I, I, I would think about like, oh man, how am I going to get married? Because I had this anxiety disorder and I oftentimes couldn't like leave my house. I thought, how am I going to date anybody? Like I just thought to myself, I have a desire to be married, but I, there is no way somebody's going to waste their life on me. Like, eh, that was very legit. Who's going to, to say, oh, I want to date the guy who can't go on a date? <laughs> like, like, who's going to do that? And I was so insecure. Um, but I got to know Tara a little bit, and we, we served together, but it was like a couple times a month, and the months went by, and I had the one encounter with her where she said, and I've told this story before, and also I'll rifle through it, where, where she was going to, um, she wanted to start a Bible study with me. She knew I was a new believer, and I said, okay, yeah, let's do it, let's do it, hoping she'd forget about it, and she never forgot about it. And one day, she finally called me on it and said, are we going to do this or not? I got friends who will be a part of it, because I was like, I don't have anyone who's going to be a part of it. I mean, like, I didn't hardly know anyone, and, and then I said, she said, I got friends who will be part of it, and I said, all your friends like you? Because I don't know if I would want to be a part of that. And I didn't know what I was saying at the time. It just came out. And she said, oh my gosh. She looked at me like, you are an idiot. And she turned around and she walked away. And I remember watching her walk out the door of the churches at Westbrook, at Baptist Church down there in Hutch. And I remember thinking, well, that's over. And, and I thought, there's no coming back from that. But I remember I had this ministry um, where, and I was like a believer for six months, but God was really getting me all fired up. And uh, I started this thing for widows and orphans. I said, there needs to be something in the church for widows and orphans. And so I, 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 I advertised in the church and said, if you want to volunteer to help, well, it could be cutting trees, changing light bulbs, whatever. But anyone who calls the church that needs help, single moms, we're going to take care of them. We've got to have people ready to take care of them. So like 50 people sign up. They want to be part of this. The only person who ever shows up to like anything is Tara. So it's just like me and Tara at these different events, but we're, we're serving people on a regular basis. And this little old lady, she, 
um, she told us, uh, I, I need my house cleaned. And so Tara went over there to clean and she calls me like a few minutes in. She's like, uh, you have got to come. This is like a three story house. It's huge. You've got to come help me. And so I pull in there and I was like out mowing lawns or something. And I walk in and this is a huge house. I had no idea how big it was, but she was, Tara was cleaning, cleaning, cleaning. And this gal's like sitting there watching TV and Tara and I are in the kitchen. And, and finally, after like all these months of tension, I, I, I we just stopped and we just looked at each other. And I was, I was like, oh, I don't want to talk about this. Like, I don't want to explain all my anxiety stuff. And I finally just laid it out there and said, this is why I did what I did. And this is who I am. And kind of take it or leave it. And to my surprise, she was like, I'll take it. And it was either that night or the next night that we got together and we just kind of laid it out on the line and said, listen, we're, we, got it. we got junk, we got issues. Um, but like, if we're going to walk, we need to start walking. Like, that was it. The rest is history. And I remember thinking, I'm glad we had that awkward conversation in the kitchen because I was scared to death to ever have that and never thought it would actually happen. How many of us have access to the God of the universe? And we can talk to him and we can boldly ask. And he says, give me success. That's bold. He says, grant me mercy. That's bold. He says, let your ear be attentive. That's bold. You know who you're talking to? Nehemiah, you're talking to God. And yet we have access to Jesus in the same way. And we have things that we want to talk to him about, but there's things holding us back. There's past sin. There's things that make us feel unlovable, unworthy, unacceptable. There's hurts. There's hangups. There's junk that's stopping us. And some of us don't even know it. But it's like, oh, if I had to get down to the courts, I just never felt like I was good enough. I just don't feel like God would accept me. And God's sitting there saying, if you just stop me in the kitchen, I might receive you in a way that you never realized I would. Because I'm not looking at you. I'm looking at my son dying on that cross. And if you want him, I'll take you. If you want him, I'll take you. You can come boldly. Jesus gives us access. Jesus prayed for us. Jesus intercedes for us. He prays us into his own kingdom. When he said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And when he said, it is finished, he was saying, come on in. The very people killing him were the very people he was dying for. When you remember that, when you sit in that, make you want to pray for the people out there. Let's pray.